Health Matters with Karen Key. Well, NASA declared 2014 as the hottest year on Earth, and scientists say the general trend is up. The average temperatures in South Africa have risen by 1.5 degrees over the past century. It doesn't sound like a lot, but it is quite a lot. And that is opposed to 0.8 degrees globally, which poses a more immediate threat for South Africans. Well, as South Africa begins to experience longer and more intense heat waves, so too the degree to which individuals suffer from heat stress, and that will increase and further compromise mental well-being. Well, joining me now is Mariska van Aswegen, spokesperson for Pharma Dynamics. Mariska, welcome to the show once again. Hello, Mariska, are you with me? Yes, I'm with you. Oh, hello, there you are. I thought it was maybe the heat. I know that Johannesburg's been having an awful heat wave over the last few weeks, and it's been pretty hot over in Cape Town for the last while as well. Absolutely. We've had quite a hot day ourselves here in Cape Town with no no, um, breath of fresh air or wind to cool us down at all. I was rather delighted to hear earlier that there will be a breeze tomorrow, so I thought, well, at least I'll survive tomorrow. So people don't really relate the heat to mental well-being, and what is actually the connection here? Basically, the connection is, um, you know, with, with regard to being exposed to, to extreme hot weather and prolonged hot weather, it can increase our risk for dehydration and overheating, and, and exposure to heat and direct sunlight can make um, the symptoms of mental ill health much worse and can further impair our mood and energy levels. Um, on the other side, as well, uh, individuals who are already taking psychotropic medication are at high risk of, of heat stroke since um, some of these medications can actually interfere with the body's ability to regulate heat and combining all these factors it can increase your risk for for mental health issues. There was a very interesting study done in Australia over a, a number of years and some quite amazing results that came out of that study. Absolutely. There are several research papers um, from around the globe that confirm this negative impact of, of heat waves on mental health. But the specific um, study that you mentioned from Australia was done over a period of 13 years. So it was quite a long-term study that found that extreme heat exposure exacerbate um, symptoms of dementia, depression, and anxiety. And what they actually found was that admissions to psychiatric hospitals also increased by about um, 64% during these periods of, of prolo- prolonged heat exposure. That's it's actually very worrying considering that our temperatures are going up higher than anywhere else in the world. Absolutely. It is a risk um, for South Africans, and we need to take note of these um, these increase in temperatures. And it might not sound a lot, as you said earlier, but an average temperature of 30 degrees for, for two days or longer would be considered a, heat, a health alert. And it is therefore important for us to take note of, of the effect that increased um, temperatures can have on our health. Do you think we take enough notice of what the heat does to us? Because, you know, you think about the one thing that always bugged me was school sports days, for example, in the middle of summer and the heat of the day, these poor children are running around. I see a lot of schools now have them in the early evening, which is a lot better because it's slightly cooler. But they're people that work. I mean, construction workers, farm workers. I mean, they're all out in the midday sun in that heat. I mean, it can't be good for them. Unfortunately, you know, there are some instances, as I mentioned, that we won't be able to avoid the direct sunlight mm. or the heat um, at the heat of the day. And that's when it becomes important for us to try to find different ways of cooling ourselves down. And, and I think it is important for, for us to find a little strategies that will work for you and your environment and your work environment um, to try to cool yourself down, especially if we, if we see that, you know, heat stroke is basically, it occurs when your body's temperature regulating systems breaks down and the body is unable to cool itself, and you would have to aid your body in, in, in order to, to prevent the heat stroke from occurring. I know in America they have things called snow days where they close the schools and they close things because it's snowing or it's too cold. We should have heat days in South Africa where it's just too jolly hot to go anywhere. That does make sense, yeah. especially <laughs> if we take the health risks associated with this heat and, and increased heat and prolonged heat exposure into account. So what can we do? To, I mean, because you're standing there, it is absolutely sweltering and you think there is nothing possible I could do to cool myself down. But there are some tips. What can we do just to try and help ourselves a little bit? The easiest way to cool yourself down is obviously to, to um, maybe keep a bottle of water in the fridge or in the cooler and, and to, to spritz yourself with cold water every now and again, your arms and your face, your extremities, etc. Ideal to take a, a cold um, shower or bath, but that's obviously not always possible at the office or when you are outside. Um, so try, do try to keep a cold bo- bottle of water. If you, if you are exposed to, um, to, the, the, um, to the heat and have work outside, try to freeze the bottles the water the night before so that it stays colder for longer as well. 
And obviously what we wear helps as well. I mean, don't go out in the midday heat wearing black, for example. No, absolutely. Keep your light, uh, your, your, the clothes that you wear cool and light. And then, um, you know, if you do go um, outdoors, please also try to hydrate and stay hydrated and, and eat small regular meals during the course of the day because that all helps the body to function more effectively. And if you are taking medication, try and have adequate supplies so you don't have to go out there to get them. Absolutely, and I think also take note of medication's effect on the body and, you know, if, if it does affect the, the body's um, ability to regulate heat, um, some medication can actually um, affect the body's ability to sweat, which is obviously an important sort of cooling mechanism of our body. And, and you know, you need to take note of those uh, of those effects of your medication on your body and, and if that is something that you do experience, to try to implement strategies um, that, that will assist your body in cooling itself down. The other thing, I was reading some information, I, was, I didn't actually realize this, but it said here that isolation in extreme heat can make symptoms of mental ill health worse. Absolutely. If you if you um, have been uh, diagnosed with a with a mental health condition already, um, as you've mentioned, isolation in these extreme heat conditions can make the symptoms um, become worse, and and that's why it's also important to keep in daily contact with family, friends, and neighbours. Isolation in general for people with mental health issues is is you know it can be detrimental to the to the overall management of the condition. Um, but if there are external factors like this heat that that further affects the um, you know or cause isolation, prevent you from going outside, it, it can um, have this adverse effect further on, on your mental health and mental condition. Now, Pharmadynamics does have a toll-free helpline. If you're feeling a bit down, you're feeling that you're depressed, you can call. Absolutely. Uh, we do have a, a helpline that is manned from 8 in the morning to 8 in the evening, seven days a week by trained counsellors. Um, that that uh, Members of the public can phone if they do feel that they experience symptoms of depression or, or they just want to talk to a counsellor to help identify whether or not these symptoms are noteworthy and, and to get assistance to be directed to a healthcare professional in their area. And that toll-free helpline is 0800 205-026. And you also have a website. People can engage in a sort of discussions with other like-minded people. Yes, we do have the Let's Talk uh, Mental website, which is a, men- a website dedicated at, at breaking the silence around mental health issues. Um, a lot of people are, are still reluctant to talk about these conditions. They're still afraid of the stigma that's attached to these conditions, which prevent them from getting the right medical help. And the aim of the website is to get South Africans talking about, about these conditions in, in the hope that we would, we would break down these barriers and that would lead to people seeking the right medical help. Mariska, thank you so much for joining us. I think we've given people a lot of information, possibly some information that they might not have thought about before, which is wonderful to, to be able to help and to give them the sort of a, an access to a helpline number, which I will give out again in a moment. But thank you very much indeed once again for joining me on the show. I look forward to speaking to you next time. Absolutely. Thanks a lot, Karen. Mariska von Asvirchen is the spokesperson for Pharma Dynamics. And for more information and to engage in a dialogue about mental health and wellness, you can take a look at the website. It's www.letstalkmental.co.za. There's also a toll-free helpline. Pharma Dynamics runs a toll-free helpline on 0800 205 and that is manned by trained counsellors who are on call from 8 in the morning till 8 at night, seven days a week. Health Matters with Karen Key. Well, Sipla Foundation recently launched the Early Childhood Development Campus in Cape Town's Gugaletu Township. The campus, made from Azuga fire-resistant structures, is set to benefit at least 100 children in the local community. David Greer is Sipla Foundation's Managing Trustee. David, good evening. Welcome back to the show. Hi, Karen. How are you? I'm very well. How are you doing? This is a wonderful project. Yeah, it's been really exciting as this has unfolded and, and you know, grown over the last few months. Now, Azugo, I think I spoke to you right back in the beginning when that was launched back in February 2013. Now yeah. you've built this campus. Tell me a little bit first of all about Azugo and then about the campus. Yeah, what we recently did was we designed this fire-resistant structure. Um, it was roughly 16 square meters in size, um, specifically to help try and alleviate the, the risk of shack fire, the, you know, the shack fire crisis mm. and, and issue relating to pressures. And what we initially did was we looked at replacing um, individual little pressures with these units. And as the project unfolded, we found out that the, the best way to do this was to get four or five pressures together and form a little campus. 
So we, we set up a, a square of, of 12, between 10 and 12 of these units, and uh, the back is to the, the high-risk areas, and all the little creches face inward, and in the middle there's a central play area, there's decking around the creches, there's sand pits, we plant a tree. So what happens now is the children are totally shielded from the outside environment, and they come into this little campus, and, and it's like a little paradise for the eight hours that they spend at their little school. So it's evolved to be an amazing uh, project. But it's more than just that now, because it's almost become a community destination, if you like. It, it has, and, and you know, for us, as this specific one with Mama Martha, the, the little principal that, that runs the school, you know, she's got now um, eight women working for her, and um, the community has become so involved, and in the evenings they use it as a, an area to have meetings. But as you said, it's become a little hub within this, this informal settlement. It's, it's uh, special to see what's going on there. And also, I mean, the other thing as well that, that you mentioned now about all the people working there, it also, it's also now employing more people, so it's supporting job creation as well. Yeah, you know, when we, we set this up, we, we wanted these creches to be sustainable little enterprises for women in the community. And um, the way it's evolved now by grouping the ladies together and they form this little cooperative that they have the school and the parents pay a small fee as well as um, through the, the way that the creche is set up is we also get it accredited by um, the Department of Social Development. So the teachers then become um, compliant to get their, their grants as well from, from state. So in doing this, we, we've also helped create compliant little structures. They have flush toilets, they have their own kitchen, they have a little headmistress and social worker room, and then their, their classroom. So it's, it's, oh, it's, it's been an exciting project the way it's evolved. I have to ask you, David, I'm sure you've been out there now that the children are in this creche or in the, on the campus. Um, how much of an amazing feeling is it to see those little happy faces in such a fabulous environment? No, it's been special. You know, to me, the nicest is if you look at the surrounding area and, and, and the actual pitiful situation around, and when the kids go through the gate into this campus, they're shielded from the realities. They escape into their own little dream world that this creche creates for them. And I mean, the, just the, the month and a half that these kids have been there, their, their growth has been unbelievable. It's really, really, we, we can see how the children have flourished in this environment. Now, this is one of those things that we're working on really hard as a country is early childhood development. And situations like this and structures like these are really going to go an enormously long way to trying to get this problem sorted out because it's one of the things that we really need to work on really well, hard. Now, if, you know, if, if I look at specific, there are two main areas we're working in in the Western Cape. The one is the moon and the other one is, is um, the edge of Kailicha and Yanga. And, I mean, there are not... 10, 20 kids, there are hundreds of kids roaming the streets during the day that don't have access to, to early childhood development. And, you know, that first thousand days of a child's life is so, so important. So what we're focusing on through the Simpler Foundation is looking at those first thousand days and creating these, these um, really well-thought-out little ECD campuses, linking it into health services so that we can give them a, a holistic uh, approach to those first thousand days and helping the community, uh, corporates and state. You know, it's got to be a combination of the three. Mm. Otherwise, we're never going to alleviate the problem. We all have to, you know, stop criticizing and pointing fingers and just join hands and, and, and look at a, a solution to this. Now, this is being run in partnership with Income Villabantu, it's a charitable trust that actually supports township preschools around in Cape Town. Yes, yes. so Income Villabantu, they introduced us into this community and to Mama Martha. And so what we do as a foundation is we, we perfect infrastructure. We then partner with a credible foundation that uh, has perfected the teachings and has the relationship with the ECD uh, teachers in a specific area. And then we take it a step further to partner the state to help these teachers get their, their units accredited so that they then can, can draw on the grants which help the school flourish, you know, that it becomes more sustainable and they're not always standing there waiting for, for handouts, they actually are, are a, a, a growing concern as, as a little business. And that's to us the most important. Now, early childhood development in itself is a very expensive process. Now, I'm, I'm assuming that it would need to be sort of a joint effort between 
government, NGOs, private investors, and how is that going? Are people looking to get involved with things like these? You know, now that we have this um, pilot up, that people can actually see what can be achieved, the, the interest is, is, is massive. I mean, from, from, from government, from other NGOs, from corporates, so it's, it's been a revelation to see now that people, that it's not something on paper, that it's actually tangible, and people can go visit the campus and say, oh, we can see its works and we can see the potential of it. That has taken it to, to the next level, and that's, you know, it's, it's been probably five years getting to this stage, but we're at the stage now where we have the capacity to, as soon as we get funding, to roll out these units. We, we're looking at a little campus in KZN now. We've uh, looked like we've secured funding to, to put up a campus there. Um, we've got two other sites in the Western Cape that we've been earmarked, and as well, even the, the mayor from the Eden District came down to see us last week, and he has two sites he'd like us to look at. Um, you see, we can't put up these campuses. So the, the word's spreading, and, and as the people are, are, are seeing the, you know, what we've achieved, the, the excitement's growing as well. Just I mean, for people who aren't quite sure what this Azuga fire-resistant structure is all about, what exactly is it? So the, the structure was, was designed to withstand the temperatures and the ferocity of a shack fire as they, they, they just rush through settlements. I mean, they can move a kilometre in, in 20 minutes. So this structure is, is built out of fire-resistant panels that are about 40 millimetres thick. It stands on its own steel frame, and it is resilient to fire up to 1,200 degrees for 45 minutes. So we've had it tested to that. So if a fire rages up next to the school, it can burn against the outer wall, and this, this building can withstand those massive temperatures for just under an hour, and it gives you time to get fire services in there to extract children, or it can also be a place of safety where, where children can gather and wait till help can come and extract them from these units. Now, are these the kinds of, of structures that could possibly be used for people wanting to build in the townships instead of putting up the shacks, which, as you say, can burn so quickly? Correct. So, so long-term, we, we're looking at it as that as also as emergency temporary housing, um, we've designed it in a modular kit form, so it comes in, in panels, and uh, a group of four people could erect a unit in, in half a day. And they, they weigh about um, just over a ton in weight, so they, they're robust units, and, and they're heavy, and they, you know, they, they, they look basically styled like a Wendy house, but um, they're incredibly robust, fire-resistant, waterproof, test-proof, so, we, you know, anyone who, who purchases one of these has a, a secure little home to live in for up to 10, 12 years until, you know, unfortunately we know that government's not going to be able to solve the, the housing crisis in the next 5, 10 years. So we see these structures as, as helping just alleviate the, the terrible living conditions that people have to live in in shacks, that instead of that we can maybe assemble these little units where people are, are kept warm, dry, safe, and also give them access to, to ensure their household content because it can't burn. So mm. you also got that sense of security for the person living in a unit like that. And something like this, you know, putting up these campuses, for example, for companies, for the, can we use this as a CSI, a corporate social in, investment initiative as well? I mean, they can use this as part of that. Definitely. You, you know what we've looked at, at foundations is... Um, through the Sipla Foundation, we take donor funding and turn it into sustainable business. So if, if we can't guarantee we can turn a unit into a sustainable business, we won't, we won't touch it because, you know, we look at communities. It's not the question of giving a community something. It's doing something with the community. And that's what we do. We're not giving them anything. We're doing something with them. We're creating ownership of this. We're creating job employment, and we, we, we're creating pride in the community through, through the projects that we do. So that's how, how we've been looking at, at rolling out CSI, that it, it must have a, a lasting, meaningful relationship with the community and, and, and sustainable and, and, and creates jobs. And as you may, we mentioned right at the very beginning, the thing that it is multi-purpose, it's not just the, the preschools or the early, edu- early childhood development campus, it's also become yeah. a social hub for the community itself, meetings and all sorts of other things they could use the campus for, which actually I think makes people feel a part of it. It's not just, oh, well, that's for the people with children. It can be for anybody in the community to use. 
Yes, because we're also looking at, at after-school facilities where children come out from school and they've got nowhere to study or go. So we're looking at these campuses, um, expanding on them and providing after-school care facilities where older children can come and study. But, you know, that would have to be um, slightly separated from the youngsters so that there's, there's not disturbance between the two groups. But we, we're looking at Lincoln's after-school facilities as well on the sides of these, these campuses. So, it, as you say, it can becomes a total community hub. Well, it's fabulous. This is the first, I'm assuming, David, of many around the country. Yes, we, we hope to, to escalate this. And, and uh, as, as we find more partners joining with us, uh, it's definitely going to grow. Well, what we... You know what, what else we've done is we don't give a child a specific classroom for the day. In this specific ca- campus, there's seven classrooms. So the one classroom is the reading classroom. Then this group of children moves to the next room, which is the puzzle room. And so the groups of children keep moving through the day to different rooms. Then they have the dream room, and then they have the art room. So the whole day they are kept stimulated as they move from teacher to teacher and little room to room. And inside the rooms we've kept it very calm and, and, and sort of pastel in color. And when they run outside to the play area, that's all the vibrant colors that they can really excite themselves and run around crazy. When they come back in the classrooms, it's calm, quiet, you know, and, and then the teachers work with the kids. So we've, we've seen that that concept seems to have worked very well there to keep the kids stimulated through the day, moving around in their different areas. I don't know about you, but that sounds a whole lot better than my day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was stuck in one room with a lump of plasticine. It got a bit hot in there. <laughs> That yeah. just sounds like the kind of day I wouldn't mind having every now and again. Calm, I like the calm bit, you know, the calm pastel colours and the so just doing my own thing for a bit. It just sounds wonderful. But yeah. David, as I said, it's a fantastic initiative and well done to everybody at Supply and to you for being so involved with that. I love chatting okay. with you about these amazing things that you do and hopefully we can chat again soon about something else you guys are doing at Supply. Yes, thanks very much. Thank you very much for your time this evening. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you. David Greer is Sipler Foundation's Managing Trustee. And for more information on this project, you can take a look at www.ajuga.co.za. And that's spelled A-J-U-G-A, ajuga.co.za. Well, the Portfolio Committee on Communications hereby invites institutions and or individuals to nominate a person to fill a vacancy of non-executive member to the board of the South African Broadcasting Corporation Limited, which arose from the resignation of a member of the board for the remain for the remainder of the term of office of the current board which is until the 24th of September 2018 nominees must have expertise and experience in broadcasting policy and technology broadcasting regulation media law business practice and finance journalism, entertainment and education and labour issues. Nominations and inquiries must be addressed to the committee secretary, Mr. Tembin Korsin Gorma, Portfolio Committee on Communications, email tngorma at parliament.gov.za or faxed to 086-522-5740. Telephonic inquiries can be made to 021-403-3733 or 083-709-8407. The closing date for nominations is Friday the 27th of February at 4 o'clock. Please note that nominees may be subjected to qualifications check and security clearance and late submissions will not be considered. Health Matters with Karen Key. Ulcerative colitis is a chronic inflammatory bowel disease which affects the large intestine. Common symptoms include rectal bleeding and bloody diarrhea, and the condition could lead to an increased risk of colorectal cancer. Well, joining me now is Dr. Peter Barrow, and he's a consultant gastroenterologist and honorary lecturer in the School of Clinical Medicine in the Department of Internal Medicine in the Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of the Witwatersrand. Dr. Barrow, good evening. Welcome to the show. Hi. Good evening, Karen. Thanks for having me. This is one of those conditions. Is it one of those immune disorders, autoimmune conditions? Yes. So ulcerative colitis falls under a group of conditions called inflammatory bowel disease. But but what inflammatory bowel disease or IBD is, is it's exactly that. It's a type of sort of autoimmune condition where your own immune system is almost rejecting your own intestine. In a, in a way, it's, it's very similar to uh, another condition that's actually linked or related that, that we see on the skin, like psoriasis or eczema. But what's actually happening with ulcerative colitis is 
you've actually got that, that inflammation or that sort of rash on the lining of your intestine, but not, not on your skin, if, if that makes any sense. Yes. Now, is this similar to something called Crohn's disease? So, exactly. So, so this term, inflammatory bowel disease, or IBD, is sort of a blanket term for uh, inflammation of, of the intestine. And Crohn's and ulcerative colitis are sort of actually very closely related um, in that they're both inflammation of the intestine. Whereas, uh, but the main difference is ulcerative colitis is basically specific to the colon, whereas Crohn's can involve the, the, the entire gut from sort of the mouth all the way through through the where you, where you swallow your food, through the food pipe, through the stomach, through the small intestine, and, and also can involve the colon. Uh, interestingly, the, these conditions, about almost a quarter of patients, though, will have what we call extra intestinal um, sort of manifestations or outside of the intestine features, such as arthritis, um, they can have skin rashes, they can have eye problems, uh, liver problems. So even though we say ulcerative colitis is confined to the colon, there are associated uh, conditions that are also involved outside of the colon. Is this something that sort of appears initially at a, when you're sort of quite young or is it something that sort of comes about when you're in your 20s? When does this normally start if you're going to unfortunately have ulcerative colitis? Okay, so, so uh, uh, what you're asking is, is how, yeah, so who, who it affects and, mm. and sort of what, what and it's, it's a fascinating condition in that we're seeing a dramatic increase in basically in patients with ulcerative colitis. Um, and th- th- this is seen throughout the world in all developing countries. And, and in fact, it's quite interesting. Since the Second World War, even developed countries, they saw a dramatic increase uh, with inflammatory bowel disease. And, and in developed countries, it's sort of plateauing. Whereas in developing countries, we're still seeing a, a very large increase. The, the typical age, they say it occurs in your third decade uh, for Crohn's disease. So that's in your sort of 20s and early 30s, whereas ulcerative colitis, in fact, can occur um, or typically occurs normally in your 20s onwards. And it can occur any time, typically up to the age of about 70. But we, we occasionally do even pick up patients that are in the 80s being diagnosed for the first time. You mentioned that the possible difference between developed and developing countries. Is this a lifestyle sort of dietary type thing, do you think? Any connection to that? Um, it's, so, so the actual cause of autoimmune diseases, we think it's probably genetic predisposition. So, so something in your your genes. So, in other words, your mix of your you can blame it on your ancestors, yes. sort of thing. Um, but and then there's some sort of trigger, an environmental trigger. And with all autoimmune diseases, in fact, there's something called a hygiene hypothesis. Um, in that you, we sometimes say that you can blame inflammatory bowel disease on your mother. Um, for the, in fact, there was a study recently that, that was titled exactly that, um, because she made you wash your hands and didn't really? let you play in the dirt. Um, and uh, we, we, we tend to live a very sort of clean, hygienic life, so we don't die from cholera or uh, um, amoebiasis or other funny infectious diseases, but... Uh, later on in life, because our immune systems haven't been challenged, have, in other words, they've almost been spoiled, uh, but when something comes along and triggers it, uh, your immune system then doesn't actually know what's good and what's bad, and it assumes everything is bad, and then it, it starts attacking yourself. So, so very simply, um, the, the, this is the, the sort of the, the, the reason why they think there is a sort of an increase, um, in fact, in most autoimmune diseases in sort of developing or, or developed countries, yeah. 
Well, I'll, I'll get the certificate for best mother in the world then, because my son was mostly spent his life half, the, well, half his life, I think, covered in mud. He was forever <laughs> playing in the so mud. So he probably doesn't have pros. Well, <laughs> no, he doesn't. Yeah, no, no, but no. So, but obviously, that, that, that I've simplified it dramatically. Yeah, no, sure. I was just being facetious there. I think I was just saying. No, no, I always no. seem to be sort of spotting my child at the window, looking, "What are you doing in the mud again?" You know. So, I, 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 it was a good thing, obviously, that he was playing in the mud. But something like this, though, Doctor Barrow, is this something that you go into remission because a lot of autoimmune conditions you sort of have an attack if you like and then you go into remission is well you know into sort of a quiet period if you like so so, yeah, so you do definitely so remission means sort of your or we have ups and downs mm. definitely so so in other words you have these acute flares and then they can tend to become sort of under control but often uh, you actually need medication to get you into remission um, in a way so I've mentioned that it's similar to to um, uh, sort of like skin rashes, like eczema or psoriasis, but but another one that we that I uh, sometimes talk about is asthma, where you 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 sometimes have these acute attacks of asthma, and then you you take your reliever medications, you get better. And colitis is actually similar to that, where you'll have these acute flares, where you'll you'll have a build up over a few days, where you start running to the toilet and and. You're suddenly going, and you, you can imagine how disabling it is when mm. you're sort of having to go to the toilet 12, 15 times a day. Um, you can't actually go shopping because you, 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 uh, you, you, you you're basically your bowels are completely unpredictable, and, and you become ruled. Your life becomes re- basically revolves around a toilet, which is not a very pleasant mm. way. So, so that that's the main problem with with ulcerative colitis is how it actually impacts your lifestyle and your, and your, your sort of activities of, of daily living in, in that you can't go shopping, you often struggle to work because um, you're running to the toilet all the time, you have to excuse yourself. Uh, and, I mean, the, the symptoms of rectal bleeding, people, funny enough, don't really mind the bleeding, but what they don't like is having to run to the toilet uh, sort of, so many times, and, and even at night, sleeping, you have to wake up several times at night to go to the loo. Now, this must, I mean, obviously we've mentioned impacts on your quality of life, but what about treatment, though? So, you know, sometimes the most difficult patients to treat are the patients that have mild colitis, because um, they, when we say mild, we say that they, they, they don't have really many symptoms and then they worry that the medication is, is almost worse than the disease. But in general, we, we talk about what we call a step-up approach to colitis. So we start often with the mildest, least uh, toxic medications. Um, and in fact, we, we use sort of medications that um, are almost what we call topical therapies. So, so just uh, going back to that skin, if you had a rash on your skin, you would start off with a cream and then you would put a stronger cream and then eventually you would have to take medication and, and you build up. And, and in fact, that, that's almost the approach that we use. Um, obviously, it depends on the severity. If, you, if you're ill, we, we'll, we'll start off with more effective medication. But if you've got relatively mild disease, we, we start with medication that's... Um, Basically, you take it, and when it reaches the colon, it actually almost turns into shaving cream or a cream in the gut, and it sort of covers or coats the, the lining of, of the colon. Um, and basically, you try to c- control the inflammation in the colon that way. If that's not working, you, you then build it up, and, and often you then have to take corticosteroids or sort of steroids, which they tend to have side effects that can cause weight gain and acne and diabetes. Um, so, so we tend to use those relatively short term, but they're quite effective in controlling inflammation. Um, but if you find that you have to keep taking cortisone and steroids, then, then we actually use what we call immunosuppressive medications. Now, immunosuppressive medications are medications that we use, for example, if, if you've had a kidney transplant, so you take a kidney from somebody else and put it into your body, your body would reject it. But in colitis, we, we, your body is actually almost rejecting your own colon. So we use these 
autoimmune, these immunosuppressive medications to control your own immune system. And then we, we keep going up and up and up on the ladder. Now, what about clinical trials and new research? I mean, is there anything in the pipeline, any new developments, new treatments possibly out there on the horizon somewhere? Well, so, so uh, what, what patients are very interested in is obviously that, that, um, that they, all patients look for alternative therapies. So when I say alternative therapies, I'm talking about diets, um, what, what you can do from a dietary point of view, what you can do from supplement point of view, uh, and um, various alternative sort of medications, off-the-wall medications. But at the end of the day, um, a lot of medica- a lot of research actually is still going into inflammatory bowel disease and, in fact, all autoimmune diseases to try to understand how the immune system is working. And, you no, know, there's a lot of interest in, in particular, osteocolitis and Crohn's disease to develop new ways or, or trying to understand ways on how to control your immune system, but not the whole immune system, because the problem is when you take immunosuppressive medication, you, you then lower your, your whole body's immunity. So, so the research is going into trying to target the part of the immune system that's overactive in the patient with uh, inflammatory bowel disease, so in the patient with Crohn's or osteocolitis. So instead of trying to weaken the whole immune system, we're, we're targeting various areas that we think are abnormal in patients with uh, osteocolitis or Crohn's. At, and the, the classic example there is something called tumor necrosis factor, um, where we've got what we, these what we call biologic medications mm. that basically dampen down the, the inflammation. But there's a lot of research going into um, uh, different factors in the immune system. There, there, there's what they call integrin inhibitors, and uh, how, what these are is how your your blood cells, your white blood cells, which are sort of the fighters or defenders of the body, get directed. So what we call trafficking of of the the white cells, and then we've got these these new molecules that are trying to block how the why the white cells go to the gut. Uh, I don't know if that makes sense, but it's quite complicated. Yes, absolutely. I'm very interested in the whole thing about trying to get our immune system sorted out because I've got an autoimmune condition. I've got multiple sclerosis. So I fully understand about the remitting and the relapsing and and all about the the body's immune system attacking itself because mine's not very happy with me, obviously, because it keeps attacking all the wrong stuff. Well, well, interestingly, all the medications that are used in multiple sclerosis actually work in inflammatory bowel disease. Mm. So, so there's a lot of medications that, that have been developed for um, multiple sclerosis that, that have also been and are being used, in fact, in uh, inflammatory bowel disease. Uh, and, and what's quite interesting is how closely the gut and the brain are actually linked. Mm. Um, so uh, <laughs> in, in the future, the treatment for your multiple sclerosis may be uh, you, you talked about what research is going in there. Mm. We do something called fecal transplants. I heard about that. I, I wasn't terribly, um, in, you know, excited, <laughs> terribly excited about that, let me tell you. <laughs> and how, how it changes. But, uh, you know, so, so we, the, the vets have been doing this in, in, for years where they translocate an animal from the Kruger Park to the Thule block. And what they'll do is they'll take the, the cud from another animal that's living currently in Botswana and will feed it to the animal that's been translocated from the Kruger to try to get them used to uh, living. Um, where, where we're trying to sort of replicate that is in, in probiotics and, mm. and things like that. But unfortunately, the probiotics that we take, we, we sort of, if you're lucky, you'll find one that's got eight strains, but your gut is basically a, a complex organ of about at least 2,000 different bacteria um, and in fact, what, what they're trying to do now is actually almost take your, uh, your feces and put it into a pill, which yeah. <laughs> sounds terrible, okay. but ultimately <laughs> that, that, that may be, um, and, and uh, talking about, we're talking about autoimmune diseases, but at 
linked with obesity and heart disease and, and all of that. So, so the gut is, is, is probably going to become, in, in the 21st century, the next sort of frontier in, in medicine. And it's probably the most exciting um, part of, of medicine. Uh, and, you're, and you're right there. It's just been, it's been completely ignored for the last however long. Well, Dr. Barrow, I have to thank you for your time and hopefully we can chat more about this in the future because it's a very fascinating topic, the whole con- topic of autoimmune conditions and what's going on with them. Because as you say, there's a lot of stuff in the pipeline, a lot of new research, a lot of people looking into different aspects of things. It's a fascinating sort of area to talk about. So I'd love to chat with you again in the future. But thank you very much indeed for joining us on the show this evening. Well, no, only a pleasure. And I hope it's shone some light and, and created a bit of awareness because often when patients are diagnosed with these conditions, they they it's quite a frightening mm. um, or scary uh, sort of diagnosis to come up with when people haven't heard of it. And you always think you're the only one, you know. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and uh, I mean, so ulcerative colitis is one of the most common uh, autoimmune conditions that, that we actually see. Uh, sort of, uh, you've got multiple sclerosis, but, but I'd say for every one patient with multiple sclerosis, there, there's probably 15 patients running around with, inflammatory bowel disease mm. and, and often they, they're not diagnosed. That's always the problem. The, the, there's not an awareness of this, mm. even amongst doctors that they'll give you antibiotics and antibiotics and and, and never send you for further investigations, unfortunately. Well, hopefully somebody who's been feeling a little bit under the weather and these sort of symptoms sound, oh gosh, that sounds like me, will go off and see their doctor tomorrow. Well, if we can help that, that'll be great, yeah. Well, thank you very much indeed. I hope to look forward to speaking with you again in the future. All the best. No, thank you, good Dr. Barrow. Good night to you. Dr. Peter Barrow is a consultant gastroenterologist and honorary lecturer in the School of Clinical Medicine in the Department of Internal Medicine in the Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of the Witwatersrand. Health Matters with Karen Key. And now here's the big question I mentioned at the beginning of the show. Are you happy with your sex life? Well, it's probably not the question you get asked every day. However, for most people, whether they talk about it or not, it is an important one. The answer may impact not only relationships, self-confidence and quality of life, but also on long-term health as well. And joining me now is Dr. Leon Ehlers. He's a family doctor in KwaZulu-Natal who has a special interest in sexual health. Dr. Ehlers, good evening. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much, Corin. Nice to be there. Well, it's February. It's the month of love. We've just celebrated Valentine's Day, and this topic always comes up around about this time. And it's one of those things that people, as we I mentioned, are not really keen to talk about something like erectile dysfunction. Dysfunction, and that's what we're going to be chatting about this evening. Yes, you, you're right. Um, I, I think because of uh, one's upbringing and uh, conservative ways, but. Um, being advertised and uh, putting it out in the open makes people talk more about it. And then when they talk about it, they do something about it. It's one of those things you sort of keep behind closed doors. You don't talk about it. But why is it so important that men do seek professional help for ED? Uh, Yeah, I do think the um, important um, uh, situation is that, you know, it also might be an early indicator of other health concerns. And... um, we know that uh, one out of ten people that in, in their lifetime that suffers from um, uh, erectile dysfunction later in life does develop uh, other myocardial problems or cardiovascular problems, and uh, therefore it's it is such an important issue to to deal with it. You mentioned the seri- it can be a, s- a symptom of a serious illness. And there is, I think there's a talk about if you don't get this sorted out, I think you can, within five years of the condition starting, you are at high risk of a stroke or a heart attack. You're absolutely right. Um, it is, uh, there's no doubt that uh, there's uh, evidence that uh, within five years it's a possibility. And yet men don't do anything. Well, they, they want to, but they just don't want to talk about it, so they'd just rather leave it. Yeah, um, you know, you've got a responsibility to yourself. And I, I think, um, as we said, if this is more in the open and we talk about it, and maybe with a bit of uh, peer pressure and uh, your partner pressure, um, the males uh, should uh, see to these issues. Now, there are a number of possible causes for erectile dysfunction. Oh, yes, yes. Now, this is quite a, quite a, uh, it's a big thing. Of course, uh, we talk about aging. But um, the psychological issues that goes with it uh, is quite important. 
as you say, the underlying medical conditions. And it's so vast. I, I, I talk about diabetes and high blood pressure, obesity, chronic renal failure and high cholesterol. And one thing that we sometimes forget is sleep apnea. Um, then, of course, there's a lot of neurogenic causes like um, multiple sclerosis and spinal cord traumas and other pelvic injuries and vascular diseases, atherosclerosis, um, anything that's got to do with the urine system, prostate, prostate cancer, um, endocrine disorders, you know, just like uh, hormonal stuff. And even thyroid plays a big role. Um, and uh, we know that medication, of course, uh, has, a, has a big impact on, on erectile dysfunction. And, of course, lifestyle factors, that also has a, a major effect. Um, things like and, alcohol and smoking and oh, all those yeah. things as well. Um, the, the various uh, various lifestyle factors uh, that has a, a, a big influence on uh, erectile dysfunctions, alcohol, smoking, of course, recreational drug abuse, bad diets, low exercise levels. Uh, long-distance competitive bike riding, it's, it's rare, but it does occur. So, um, And, of course, a, a female partner sexual function plays a, a big role as well in, in uh, a male's uh, erectile dysfunction. I was reading something quite horrifying. It said here it's estimated that less than one-third of men with erectile dysfunction seek professional help. And here's the really scary part, that only around 10 to 12% actually receive treatment. Yeah. That's, that's actually quite sad. It's quite sad. It's it's quite sad, and and um, it it of course can um, have an influence on uh, uh, on on the male and of course his partner as well. Um, it um, can uh, give them common feelings of uh, so I don't feel like a man anymore, and insecurity and self esteem, and they're sad for their loss. Um, of course, they get uh, afraid of approaching a new sexual partner. They're scared of being intimate. They're angry and aggressive, and they feel ashamed. They sometimes worry about not being able to pleasure their, their partner and feeling guilt about their dysfunction. But, as you say, sometimes they don't do anything about it, and um, uh, it, it has consequences. There is treatment, though, Doctor? Definitely. There must be treatment. Um, I, I think one has to have a holistic uh, approach to a person, and it's not just uh, by prescribing a little blue pill. You have to, you have to um, be seen by your, your doctor and be assessed, and a good medical examination, as we mentioned right in the beginning, um, it could be an early indicator of other health concerns, and um, therefore one needs to have the medical part of it. Um, and uh, except uh, for making changes in your lifestyle, um, I, we know that there is uh, medication that, that can help for these things. Now, when we get to the medication part, this is the part that actually frightens me a little bit because I'm sure everybody, I don't think there's anybody in this country who hasn't received those very peculiar emails. We see all this stuff out there and, you know, different kinds of medications and that you can buy off the internet or that worries me. Surely people should not be going for those sorts of things, especially not having been checked out by a doctor. Don't try and sort this out yourself with some rather dubious stuff that you're buying off the internet. No, you're absolutely right. I, I, I believe there was a, um, a USA recently uh, surveyed 10,000 online setting sites, and um, 90, 97% of these people were operating illegally and not following pharmacy laws and standards. And uh, a lot of these things can contain uh, products that can be really detrimental to your health and, and uh, could actually cause your death. Um, we know some of these medications uh, contain products that you can't even believe, toxic chemicals and, and other drugs, um, anything from shoe polish oh to road paint. Uh, it's, it's, uh, I mean, that's what's been established. Sure. So what should men... Okay, we've, they've got to go to the doctor. That's the first thing. Don't I try think, and do this I yourself. Think, I think that's um, um, yeah, that's the first stop you make. You've got to see your doctor. It's a part of your general health. Your sexual health is a, 
as I said, is a very good indicator of your general health. And uh, the first stop should be with a qualified guy that can assess you uh, in a medical way and establish the the problem and um, get to the bottom of it. And um, as we said, the treatment is there, but use it in the right way and uh, be educated uh, with all the, the info that's needed. And if people are a little bit dubious, because, you know, I always say men never go to the doctor by themselves. It's always their wives or when they're younger, their mothers, who take them off to the doctor. So if the men out there are wanting to talk to somebody, but they don't actually want to go to the doctor just right at the moment. Um, I know that Pfizer actually has a helpline for people if they'd like to talk about this. Yes, I, I believe they've got a helpline. And, and there's also um, the South African Sexual Health Association mm. that's got a helpline. I'm not familiar with those numbers, but... Uh, I don't think it's difficult to. I've got um, I've got the Pfizer one. It's a helpline number, and I'll give I'll give that out shortly. So if people want to just initially want to start the conversation, you know, it's a good always a good thing just to start the conversation, and then maybe yes. they can you can move on from there and go and speak to your doctor. And the other thing that people must understand as well that our population is aging. And I was actually reading some information that says because of the aging population, the number of men with erectile dysfunction is anticipated to double by 2025 in comparison to the corresponding number in 19. That's actually quite alarming. And I, and I think the numbers in, in, in that uh, that they've mentioned was about 100 million men uh, in the world that had a problem. Okay, And um, it's now so general that 40% of men at the age of 40 have it, and 50% of men at the age of 50, 60% at the age of 60, and 70% of men at the age of 70. And age should not be... Um, uh, like breaks to uh, enjoy your sexual health. And you think that's possibly sort of envi- not environmental, but sort of lifestyle related? Yeah, as we said, there's so many factors involved mm. and um, something can be done about it. But I think the first point is go and get yourself checked out. And one of those things, it's not just about your sexual health, because it, as we said right at the beginning, it can be an indication that there could be something else wrong with you. And rather get that checked out now than finding out later when you have a stroke or a heart attack if you haven't been checked early enough. Exactly. I agree. There's um, the need for, for um, uh, observation and um, making sure that the general health uh, is in place. Dr. Ellis, thank you very much for joining us. And hopefully we've got some men out there listening who will think about going off to see their GPs tomorrow. Or I'll give them this uh, helpline number in a moment and possibly just making that first call tomorrow morning and get the ball rolling and just start on the journey. Because, you know, it's it's for your general health. It's not just your sexual health we're talking about. It's your general health. So I think it's really one of those things we need to go get our men and all the wives out there. You know, if your man hasn't been off for a, a good physical examination by the GP recently, please take him, make him go. One of those things. We tend to be able to get this right. So let's uh, get our men out there and get them healthy. Dr. Ellis, thank you very much indeed for your time this evening. Thank you very much. Thanks for your great show. Thank you. Good night to you. Good night. Dr. Leon Ehlers is a family doctor in KwaZulu-Natal, and he's got a special interest in sexual health. Well, if you'd like to talk to somebody about this, there is a helpline. Pfizer, which is a pharmaceutical company, has a helpline, and you can call them. It's 0860 Seven three four nine three seven zero eight six zero seven three four nine three seven. Well, that's it for Health Matters for this week. I'm Karen Key. Thanks for joining me. And I'll be back with you again tomorrow evening just after nine with Time to Travel. So join me then. And don't forget, there's now a list of available documents for Health Matters. So if you'd like any of those, take a look at the Facebook page, Health Matters on SAFM, or drop me a mail to healthmatters at safm.co.za. Well, it's time now for some nighttime music with Stephen Kirker. Hello, Stephen.